On a whim, I open a Google tab and start to type, by what age should you... Google suggests I might be looking for the age by which you should own a house, freeze your eggs, have a career, move out, have a baby, be debt-free, and other predictable life milestones. Of course, the idea of a milestone is that it represents a predicted passage from one stage to another. You can't really have a milestone if you're not on a journey with a clearly delineated route. Babies have certain developmental milestones to watch for. Now, not every infant crawls or says its first word at the same time, of course, nor do they need to. But keeping track of those developmental milestones gives parents and healthcare providers certain clues of what's going on with this new little person. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. For the last century or so, we've subjected teens and adults to a similar set of developmental milestones. Graduate high school at 18, go to college or enter the job market, move out of the family home sometime in the early 20s, find a partner, get married, buy a house, have a kid, work and work and work some more, and then retire at 65. Now, for as natural as that sounds to most Americans today, it's a pattern of life that's a mere footnote in the annals of human society. So it came into being about 120 years ago. And uh, it happened because we introduced two major innovations. That's Mauro Guillen. He's a sociologist, political economist, and management educator. He's also the vice dean of the MBA program at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's the author of the new book, Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. One was universal schooling, mm -hmm. which then effectively separated the first two stages. So early childhood from, you know, the time when we are supposed to attend to school and everybody's supposed to attend school. And then we also introduced at about the same time uh, pensions for the first time. And that also created a boundary between our working years and our retirement. These innovations essentially divided life into four stages, what Morrow calls the sequential mode of life. So when we're very little, we play, then we go to school, then we work, and then finally we retire. Those are the, the, the four stages or stations in life. Moving from one stage to another at the right time is sort of proof of your fitness for society. And for the longest time, we've been essentially been telling people, you have to go through those stages at the right time. And it's your problem if you don't go or you don't make the transitions, you know, when they're supposed to happen. And everything is prepared for you as long as you're in life to succeed unless you deviate from that pattern. Now, I return to Google and type obstacles late bloomers face. The results are all about dispelling the notion that there are obstacles to face as a late bloomer. Late bloomers, I learn, bring all sorts of strengths to the workplace. They might even be happier in the long run. And cool, fine, 
I totally agree that the value someone brings to an organization or a community doesn't change based on what age they graduated from college or when they got married. And there are real structural and financial difficulties that come from not settling down when you're quote-unquote supposed to. In the United States, however long it takes to settle into a full-time job is time your access to health care is precarious. It's time you're not saving for retirement or enjoying an employer contribution to your 401k. You might be moving around frequently and have onerous amounts of paperwork to complete. You might find it difficult to vote or become an active member of the community. Now, these are largely privileged problems. People of color, immigrants, disabled people, and poor people face greater structural pressure to move from one stage of life to the next on time. So the challenge of being a late bloomer isn't only social stigma. It's not something you can just write away with a motivational blog post. There are real financial, civic, health, and quality of life issues to face too. But that all said, it seems that the sequential mode of life and its imperatives don't seem to match the reality on the ground today. Yeah, so there's, there's two things going on, and they've been going on for quite a while. The first is that there's a number of trends that essentially are converging, and they are presenting us with this new situation in which we need to be more flexible. So those trends are, we're living longer, uh, so therefore we have more years to decide what is it that we want to do with our lives. And not only that, we stay healthy, uh, you know, far longer than before. And therefore, that means that, that, you know, it's not that when you're 60, you can no longer pursue an active lifestyle. You can still do lots of things at age 60, at age 70, at age 80. So both of those things are really important. And the third is technological change. Technological change is essentially, you know, telling us, well, you know, you may not be able to work on the same thing, to have the same occupation. Uh, to pursue just one career in your lifetime, you may have to actually switch, right? So all of those things, when you put them together, they're essentially inviting all of us, 100% of us, to rethink the way in which we think about life and uh, especially, specifically about when we learn, when we work, when we retire and so on and so forth. But then there's a second very important reason, which is I'm sure, Tara, that you've noticed that there's a lot of people who at some point don't make their, their transition when they should. Mm -hmm. For example, teenage mothers people who abuse substances or high school dropouts and so on and so forth. And then those people have a really hard time with the current system because our current system has been thought for people who can essentially make progress on a steady basis right from one stage to the next. Now, back when I was dealing with my own lack of transition from one stage to the next, I delivered a performance review to one of the full-time team members at the borders I managed. This person was a competent employee who didn't have any major issues, but also wasn't a superstar. The review was fine. The employee asked about their schedule, telling me that their dad had said they really should be working a regular schedule by now. That is a Monday through Friday, nine to five schedule. Now, unfortunately for this team member's dad, we were working in retail. Our store was open from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. Literally no one on staff worked a quote-unquote regular schedule. 
Now, I have no idea what I said in the moment other than something along the lines of, that's not going to happen. But I've thought about that moment so many times over the last 15 years. While I was surprised that this team member would ask for that kind of schedule when no one else had it, what really surprised me was the father assuming that nine to five jobs still existed. All right, look, I know, they still exist, but they're not common. And the idea that someone my age, 23-ish at the time, should have found their way into a regular nine to five job by then was quaint at best. All that to say, that so many of us are operating with expectations of how life is supposed to go that just don't reflect the reality on the ground. And while I wholeheartedly believe we can make the reality on the ground so much better, I also believe we need better ways to navigate what is, and we need a better map to navigate by. So this is the other thing that we need to keep in mind. And this is, by the way, why the book is not only for people in their 40s or 50s or 60s, it's also for people in their 20s. But I think that this new concept in which you may have two or three careers in your lifetime, I think that releases a lot of the pressure that we put on teenagers and people in their early 20s, that they have to make up their minds as to what is it that they want to do for the rest of their lives. That's crazy. How can you ask somebody that young? to make that decision, right? And of course, what we see is that there's a lot of people who then have a midlife crisis, right? Because they didn't choose the right thing. So I think this is as relevant uh, to a 45-year-old who loses uh, his or her job or their job uh, as to somebody who is in their 20s and they're trying to decide what to do in life. As a soon-to-be 41-year-old, I can say that I really needed this perspective in my 20s, even in my teens. And it's one I'm trying to share with my daughter right now. No matter how many articles there are giving parents or teens permission to relax about college majors and choosing careers, we do think of college as career prep more than ever. The whole student debt industry is predicated on the marketing message that college is an investment in future earnings. How might things be different if we thought in 10 to 15 year segments? How many different lives could we each live? So you don't have, if you're in your 20s, then to make a lifelong, faithful decision. You can think about uh, what you want to do in the next 10 or 15 years. Again, if we switch gears and we ask companies, we ask the government to think about workers in a different way, right? And to hire older workers and to help facilitate, you know, those career switches, right? Uh, but it's extremely relevant, of course, also to people who are about to retire. Well, maybe they feel they're still young and they're still healthy, and uh, they don't want to retire, but maybe they want to switch on to something else because, for example, they don't want to do manual work or physical work any longer. So we should be facilitating also those transitions there to something else that would be appealing to people at that age. So most employers, they tend to hire at the entry level people who are relatively young. So this has to change, right? And this will change not only because I've written this book, but also because companies are having a lot of trouble hiring younger people because as workers retire, remember that the younger age cohorts are smaller and smaller because of the decline in fertility in the number of babies. So they need to replace workers because they've been retiring, but there's not enough young people, unless, of course, we have immigration, which is unlikely, at least uh, on on a grand scale. So I think it's going to happen because companies 
will need to compete fiercely for talent, right? And they will see the light at some point and think that uh, maybe what they should do is think about older workers in a different way. You see, older workers, it's true, we all decline cognitively since we are like 25 or 30, right? But older workers have the key advantage that they have experience. They have this know-how that is very difficult to learn, right? That only you can only learn if you are, you know, working for 20 years or 30 years. So we're essentially wasting all of that talent now that those people are healthier and they're living longer and maybe they would like to, you know, stay occupied. This all sounds really good to me, but the practical, uh, that's just the way it is part of my brain, had some questions. Namely, what's to be done about employers declining to hire older entry-level workers because they're more expensive than younger workers? That tends to be the case, uh, obviously, because people get promoted and so on and so forth. But as I said, um, what we should think about is, for example, somebody who has been working uh, you know, for 20 years in some occupation, then is approaching 50 or 60 and wants to switch. So that person can be retrained to be able to go into that other different labor market. And uh, that person, I think, may be able to actually accept a salary that would be attractive to the employer. Because let's say that somebody who has been doing manual work now acquires some really uh, useful technical knowledge, right, through retraining. Well, that person actually may be earning more relative to the manual job that he or she had before. Point. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. so it really depends. We, we would need to go through, you know, case by case and seeing the, the different possible transitions. As I mentioned before, I'm navigating college and career conversations with my 15-year-old daughter right now. She's at the point where she has careers in mind that she might like to pursue, but they're also subject to change from one month to the next. Now, I went to a small liberal arts college and got a degree in the humanities, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't emphasizing the benefits of that kind of education. But of course, I'm up against the evolution of higher education that's taken place over the last 50 years and turned college into job training. I asked Mara what skills and perspective would be most useful in a post-generational society. So let me preface my comments by saying that we will have important jobs out there for which you need training that is specific to the job. Think about sure. doctors, think about pilots, airline pilots, and so on and so forth. So there are some exceptions to this. But in general, now employers, companies, uh, they want to train their workers. Mm. So what they want is people who are very good at understanding what the situation is, understanding the context, absorbing information, learning. But more importantly, they want people to work um, socially. So I think social skills have become really important, and we barely teach them. Right. I think that you're not born with social skills. I think you you learn them. And what am I talking about is essentially, for example, things such as the ability to work in teams, the ability to collaborate with others, the ability to communicate, uh, the ability to uh, negotiate. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence, all of these things, they're becoming and there's very good data on this. They're becoming so much more important. So companies, when they advertise jobs these days, they're actually saying, you know, we're looking for somebody who has the social skills, right? In addition to whatever technical skills are required. So I think uh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think everybody should tell their children, you know, think about, well, first of all, what you're passionate about. Sure. And secondly, 
don't constrain yourself too much. I mean, think about more broadly, unless, of course, they have this thing that they want to be doctors or they want to be airline pilots or they want to be something else uh, of a similar kind where you need years and years of training, right, in order to be able to do the job. But I think uh, for most of us, for most of our children or grandchildren, I think the name of the game will be, you know, sure, you need to be good at math, you need to be good with numbers, you need to be good, I think you need to be good with uh, your language. If you can learn a foreign language, even better, because I will give you a perspective. Uh, and then you need to have these social skills, really important. So how could adopting the perennial mindset impact the quality of our lives at every age? So a perennial is someone who doesn't think and doesn't act his or her age or their age. So in other words, it's somebody who is not making decisions about what to do based on age. And I think uh, the perennial mindset essentially is telling you, look, you don't have to achieve everything by age 22 or 23 in order to make that transition from being a student to be a worker. What you need to do is think about your life in the longer term. And maybe you would want to pursue, as we were talking earlier, two or three careers. I think that takes pressure off from younger people. As you know, the rates of um, you know, depression are up also with younger people for this reason, because they feel that they have to achieve so much. And unfortunately, also the suicide rate is up for the same reason, right? So I think uh, we really need to switch gears here and adopt the perennial mindset so that we can help those young people. Now, for people in their 50s or, or 60s, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, people, when they retire, they find that it's not paradise, right? Mm-hmm. So we have been reifying retirement. Like everybody has been telling us, oh, retirement is like what you should aspire to. You should be miserable and work for 50 years because, hey, you're going to reach retirement age at some point, right? So you're not supposed to enjoy your job, right? No, no, just just that. save money, don't spend too much, and uh, you will be rewarded when you retire. And then when people retire, they find that, that they get disconnected, mm-hmm. they feel lonely. Also, they st- you know, their health deteriorates because they're not no longer as active and so on and so forth. It strikes me that so much of this conversation, for me, hinges on the question of retirement. On one hand, there are the financial concerns that pressure young people to get into a full-time job with good benefits, including the 401k employer contribution. And on the other hand, there are the psychological and quality of life concerns at retirement age not to mention the massive financial concerns. I think um, whatever policies we put in place should give people a choice. You see, there are some people who would like to retire relatively early, and there are some people who just for whatever reason, they don't want to retire uh, too early. Having said that, let me just throw at you or your listeners a couple of numbers here, right? Because people don't figure out exactly what they want to do until they actually do it, right? And then they decide, oh, that's what I want, or that's not what I want. I think uh, we're human beings, so we learn through trial and error. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, I think what I'm proposing is why don't we provide people with more information and more options so that they can actually avoid those kind of difficult transitions, like you retire and then you unretire, right? Well, why not have a different plan to begin with, right? So government policy then, I think, should be, for example, most government programs are thought for younger people when it comes to education and retraining. Well, I think uh, there should be specific government programs for people in their 60s so that they can learn something new, um, whether it is for pleasure or it is, you know, so that they can switch jobs or switch careers. That's one thing that they should do. But more importantly, I think the government should be an example for companies to follow. The government is the biggest employer in every country in the world, including the United States. 
So they could begin to help us with this change by changing their own employment policies, right? The government, like companies, they also prefer younger workers, right? Well, that's a problem. You have a problem right there. I mean, they're not supposed to discriminate by age, but you always come up with an excuse for not hiring somebody who has applied for the job and who is in the late 50s. So I think the government can both implement new policies to facilitate this, but also as an employer, it can show the way, right? I think one of the easiest ways to ease these burdens and really step into this post-generational vision of society is through quality of life guarantees. Things like a livable minimum wage, expanded union membership, a strengthened social security program, guaranteed healthcare, guaranteed housing, and yes, a universal basic income. Quality of life guarantees could help people make life transitions at any age with more ease. And while these guarantees do benefit individuals directly, they also benefit our society. Fewer people scraping by or falling behind or burning out because of unreasonable expectations and stigma is an overall cultural and economic good. I came away from perennials and my conversation with Maro really energized if also profoundly disappointed that I didn't have it to read 20 years ago. The way I see it, the perennial mindset and a socio-political structure built to support people at every age is long overdue. Huge thanks to Mauro Guillen for sharing his research and analysis with me. Go pick up your copy of Perennials, the megatrends creating a post-generational society at your local bookstore, bookshop.org, or wherever you buy books. Changing your relationship to work is hard. There is a ton of social conditioning, economic friction, and even relationship challenges to wade through. Even if you really want to change, you can easily get caught up in old patterns. And no one knows this better than the coaches, consultants, managers, and guides of all kinds who work with people who, well, work. If you're one of those guides, you already have a bunch of tools for helping people know what their values are and what really matters to them. You have tools for helping people identify their next steps. But where you might feel a bit uneasy is helping your clients or team members identify the external influences that keep them stuck or stressed. That's why I'm leading a 12-week certificate program called Work in Practice. You'll learn how to spot the social, political, and economic systems that make change hard because until we can unravel those systems and question our most basic assumptions about work, we won't be able to break the cycle and imagine a more sustainable and nourishing way forward. Work in Practice starts September 20th. Learn more about the program and view the program syllabus at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, 
a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer, and Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutanaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell. 